Now thou hast loved me one whole day. Tomorrow, when thou leaves, what wilt thou say? Welcome to Metaphysical Mondays, and this is the Troubadour Podcast. Today we're going to go over a poem by John Donne, Woman's Constancy. Now in this poem, it's going to be slightly different, or I should say dramatically different, than The Good Morrow that we read last time. The Good Morrow is much more about the transcendence and the idealism of a love that lasts forever, good morrows that we will be saying forever and ever. In women's, woman's constancy, we have much different view of love. It's a view um, where he is, John Donne is starting to question, or he is beginning to question, or it is the beginnings of his questioning as a, as a man, perhaps, of this woman that he is dating, making love to, married to, going to marry, engaged to, some metaphorical or real, imagined, whatever kind of woman. Now, the interesting thing, in my view, is his use of language, and particularly the series of questions that he asks. So, one way this poem is taken is that he he is a speaker speaking to an actual woman. And then at the end, he has a certain conclusion. I'm not going to tell you the conclusion until later. Let's see what you, you know, kind of come up with, but there's a certain kind of anxiety that he expresses in his, in this poem an anxiety about perhaps he's going to lose her. Perhaps she's not constant. I mean, I'll say right now that the idea of woman's constancy is very used very ironically um, and that becomes clear uh, as the poem progresses, progresses. It's a very short poem. It's 17 lines. So we're not talking, you know, multiple stanzas. It's written as though it's one long stanza when you have it broken up by two, um, maybe what you can almost call a, well, I'll actually know the te- technical term. It's just, the. it's almost the end of a stanza. And you'll see what it looks like. In a minute, it's three normal sized or long lines followed by a very short, um, a very short transitionary line that almost goes into the next stanza. Now, there is going to be some views from Elizabethan times that may be resonant and common to our views today, and a view of love and of you know discussing and and, and uh, of pr- how we should pursue love that many people today question if this is even the correct way to do it. Often I think this is considered a sexist poet and poem. The woman is is considered passive. But I'm going to argue something slightly different in the way that this poem should be taken. So I'm not in agreement that the poem should be taken as though it's a man actually asking questions to a real woman or even an imaginary one within the world of this poem. So let's read through this poem and let's see what we're working with here. And let's, um, so I'm going to read it once as I normally do just the way that it is because it's so short and then we'll kind of talk through it. And remember that thou is you leave us just means when you leave, right? So a lot of the words, you know, like that, hopefully you're starting to pick up on if you're listening regularly, but let's go through this. Okay. Woman's constancy. By John Donne. 
Now thou hast loved me one whole day. Tomorrow, when you lease, what will thou say? Will thou then antedate some new-made vow? Or say that now we are not just those persons which we were? Or that oaths made in reverential fear of love and his wrath any may forswear? Or as true deaths, true marriages untie, so lovers' contracts, images of those, bind but still sleep, death's image them unloose. Or your own end to justify, for having purposed change and falsehood, you can have no way but falsehood to be true. Vain lunatic, against these scrapes I could dispute and conquer, if I would, which I abstain to do, for by tomorrow I may think so too. So that's it. Now, there is, I think, a lot going on here. So, woman's constancy. He begins the poem, now thou, which so now you. And this is why I think a lot of people assume right away that he's talking to a particular woman. Or, or like she's actually in the room with him physically, within the, the world of the poem. And this may be true. You know, it's, it's not necessarily, you can't take it that way. But I'm going to try to argue something different. So now you have loved me one whole day. Now, there's a kind of irony in that. You know, we assume, or you can assume, I think, safely that it's probably a hyperbole, an exaggeration. He's not saying that she, you know, not literally one whole day, but he's kind of just saying this in an ironic way, but like a short period of time. But you like think of it, now you've loved me a whole day. Maybe she just told him yesterday. So we can take it literally and say maybe just yesterday she said that she loved him. Like last night, perhaps. Now um, thou hast loved me one whole day. Tomorrow, when you leave, what when you leave, what will thou say? So she's going to leave tomorrow. Why is she going to leave tomorrow? Maybe they don't live together. They're not married. We don't know quite yet. Maybe she just has a trip to go to, or maybe she, he knows that she's going to fall out of love with him. Right? Like that's just going to be a common thing, and maybe he's just expecting that. It's it's kind of like preparing for her to do that that what they have can't last. He knows it can't last. This is a common anxiety thing that I think a lot of people experience. So tomorrow when you leave, what are you going to say? Right? So what do you think, um, what the author is saying and the narrator is what I think you're going to say, right? He's going to go through a series of questions that he believes she's going to say, or that he assumes, or he fears that she's going to say. It's kind of, again, the embodiment the, you know, putting in the language of the anxiety of a young lover. So here's the first thing he says. Wilt thou then antedate some new-made vow? What, what do you think that means? Think about it for a second. Antedate, by the, means, by the way, means come before, right? Like antedate, like it, it, it precedes this thing. So will you then precede some new-made vow? So I think what he's saying there is something along the lines of, are you going to say that you already had some vow, right? So when she leaves, remember the whole setup is she's, he thinks she's going to leave him and say something, you know, and make an excuse. And she may say, oh, well, I'm sorry. I have something else I have to do. I already promised this person I would do this. Or even we can go deeper and say, oh, I'm sorry. My hand in marriage has already been um, spoken for by this person. This was just a mistake, right? So will you then antedate some new made vow? 
so um, the next line is, or the next two lines, or say that now we are not just those persons which we were. So this we are going to see a couple times in here that are you going to say something along the lines of that we've changed, each of us have changed, or the state that we said those words, I love you, let's say, thou has loved me one all day, that the state that those words were, were put out into the air was not the proper state to say those things, right? So it was, in other words, it was said in passion and the, the throes of passion before maybe having sex or something. And that now that they've accomplished their task, something has changed. That's one way to take it. Or it could just mean like we've changed and she's going to just have a change of heart. Right? We are not just those persons which we were. Right? People change and she changes and he changes. Okay, next question. So what else is she going to say to him? You know, these are things, again, he's worried about, she might ask. Or, or that oaths made in reverential fear of love, capital L, love, and his wrath, and he may forswear. So this is personification. Now, there's a very common personification of love, and that's Cupid. So we can assume that this is some kind of reference to Cupid. So another reason she might do this is that she might say to him, oaths made in this kind of reverential fear of love and his wrath, we can forswear or give up. So <laughs> she's, you know, he, she might say, one thing she could say is that, hey, we were again in the throes of passion, right? We were struck by Cupid's arrow. And so blood coursed through our bodies and we said things that we should not have said. So we can forswear, we can give up those kinds of things. If we say if we give up those kinds of expressions, because it's not fair to hold ourselves accountable, you know, like holding yourself accountable to what you said when you were drunk. It's not necessarily the best thing. You might make, say something really, really stupid. Okay. The next couple, the next question or Okay, this one. This is one of the most complicated metaphors I've seen in a long time. So, or as true deaths, true marriages untie. So lovers' contracts, images of those, bind but till sleep, death's image, them unloose. This is a very complicated sentence structure and a complicated metaphor, or a couple metaphors. So true de deaths, true meanings, I, I um, untie. That's the first line. True death, true marriage is untied. So what's the only thing that can untie a marriage? Death, right? A true death, apparently. So, you know, what does he mean by true death? I'm not 100% sure, but perhaps rather than a fake death or a death of like changing as a person. So I could, you know, if you say, well, Kirk is no longer, like I could say, well, I'm a different man today. So there's, I, you know, I've been reborn. And so I, my, the old me is dead. Right? So you could say metaphorically, but he's saying like true death. It's like this dude's dead. He's like in the ground. His head has been severed from his body. He's not an actual living creature anymore. That's a true death. And true marriages, you know, like where you have a contract, you've married before God and the community and all that good stuff, unties. So I, I always say to people um, when you hear all these marriage statistics that there's actually one marriage statistic that's 100% true. So we know, you know, people say, well, 50% of marriages ended in, in divorce or 30% or 60% or now it's like 80%. And 
you know, and, and people who've been divorced once are 90%, you know, likely to get divorced a second time. We don't, we don't know, you know, there's a lot of, I think, wiggle room in terms of the realities of that, you know, because it, the, the, the divorce rates might be much, much higher in general than that. But one thing you can say about marriage is that this is a 100% certain statistic. 100% of marriages end. <laughs> One, all marriages end eventually. That's a fact of marriage, is that they do end, right? And that what ends them? True death. So, so he's talking about death as the, he's talking about the undoing, the untying of marriage, right? You tie the marriage knot. The only way to do that is true death. So that's his first metaphor. And he's going to compare that. So lover's contract, so that's kind of the words or the even the, the covenant between two lovers. Images of those bind but till sleep. So images of that that you know contract in the daily life that you're going to experience experience bind but till sleep. So when you're asleep, you're not married in a certain sense. Again, this is a very complicated metaphor. I'm taking a few leaps and and things, but I think I'm I think I'm pretty correct on this. The idea is that, you know, the, the um, contract of marriage doesn't apply in sleep, right? You're unconscious. What is un being unconscious? It's death's image. <laughs> okay, so it's true. If you've ever seen a person unconscious or sleeping very deeply and they're not snoring or anything, they look dead, right? And if you've ever seen someone dead in a coffin, you can say, oh, wow, they look so peaceful. It's like they're just sleeping. So that's death's image. Them unloose is the last little phrase here. So the only way to unloose yourself is to, um, in this case, I think, <laughs> I think what he's saying is something along the lines of divorce, you know, of breaking the ties. So this, in this complicated question here, he's saying, or as true deaths, true marriages untie, bind but till sleep, death's image, them unloose. Wait, excuse me, I, I've skipped a line. Or as true deaths, true marriages untie, so lovers' contracts, images of those, bind but till sleep, death's image, them unloose. And it's like a very fragmentary way of writing this. I mean, even the way I read it, even if I try to read it in a flowing way, and I always recommend trying to do this, or comma, so there's, I'm going to read with the commas, or as true deaths, true marriages untie, so lovers' contracts, Images of those bind but till sleep, death's image, them unloose? So this is all a question. So he's saying, like, you could unloose yourself from the lover's contract through death. That's how I see it. Or through just the breaking of the contract. You can unloose it through something that's similar to death. And, and maybe that's what breaking the contract is. So breaking a contract could be similar to death. This metaphor is super complicated. I'm going to keep going in circles if I don't leave it because it just, it's, it's a very weird one. If you think you have a simple answer to it, fine. I think it's the, the way to sum it up is that the only way to get out of this is through breaking up or divorce, which is similar to death, right? And, and that's, it's the kind of thing that's similar to death. Okay. Anyway, or your own at, oh, you know, I did have to say one last thing. So I think this is maybe one of those far-fetched metaphors. It's a very convoluted metaphor, and, and it's, it takes a lot of untangling to even understand it. This is why it's called metaphysical poetry, right? Is he's relating this 
this view of the what death looks like, what unconsciousness and sleep looks like. He's relating it to marriage. And it's kind of, you know, and it's unloosing it, right? Just like you unloose your limbs when you die and then your limbs stay still. Although, of course, they go rigor mortis, so they get really stiff too. But, you know, and that's the way with a true death to break a true marriage. So it's this very complicated metaphor, and this may be what is meant by far-fetched imagery and metaphors, which is consistent of uh, metaphysical poetry. Okay, next two lines, three lines. Or your own end to justify. For having purposed change and falsehood, you could have no way but falsehood to be true. So this, I think, is a way of saying your own end to justify because you've purpo- you've initiated the changes through your will that the change and, and, and the falsehood are occurring. And you can have no way but falsehood to be true, falsehood to be true. There, therefore, what's happening is you're actually going to lie to yourself. I think that's what that line really just means is um, you have, you know, have you been or you have not been honest with yourself before? You know, when you told me you love me and maybe you're not being honest now when you don't love me, like maybe you're just not being honest with yourself. Okay. Now we have this last one, two, three, four lines. This is a very interesting, I think, and, um, in poignant ending. There's a lot of meaning going on here. Vain lunatic against these escapes. I think I read it scrapes and I've read it the first time it's scapes against these scapes. I could dispute and conquer. So let's just stop there. Vain lunatic against, against these escapes. I could dispute and conquer. Next line. If I would, which I abstain to do. So if I would do that, you know, um, Against these escapes, I could he could dispute and conquer these escapes, these arguments she makes about why they, she's going to leave the next day, if I would. But I abstain to do that. For by tomorrow, I may think like you. <laughs> so for I may actually be like her. So it's like this goes through the ups and, you know, it starts off the poem with this high, lo- you know, oh my gosh, I don't want to lose her. I'm so in love with her. But as he asks these questions, he thinks, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe I shouldn't try to convince her to love me forever because what if I feel that way tomorrow? What if I'm the one who wants to leave tomorrow? I may just be in the throes of passion still and she's no longer in that. And he calls, I think he calls himself vain lunatic. So I think he's actually speaking to himself the whole time. That's my argument is vain lunatic against these escapes. I could dispute and conquer. Like he's in the mirror and saying, I could, you know, dispute and conquer. This is a very Elizabethan view of love that love is about conquering but it's about pursuing the woman in particular. We have chivalry poetry, or, you know, the, 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 the stories of chivalry and, and going out and fighting for your knight, your, your uh, maiden, if you're a knight and for a knight to wait for her, her knight. <laughs> and if you're a woman to wait for your knight in shining armor, like that's where this idea comes from. And there's an idea of conquering the world. Um, you know, dis, I could dispute the arguments with my wit and I could conquer them with my, with force or a kind of force. So he's saying, you know, this Elizabethan idea that we still, I think to some degree have today, and a lot of people disagree with it, but this idea of, you know, one party pursuing the other one, and even in a kind of conquering the other one, there's, there's a kind of quelling of the person in a sense. 
but he says vain lunatic. Now, is he calling her a vain lunatic? Maybe she is vain. Maybe she's a lunatic. We don't know. Or maybe he's calling himself a vain lunatic. And he's saying, yeah, I could argue all of these if I would, but I don't want to, which I abstain to do. For by tomorrow, I may think as she thinks as well. So I may want to do what she is doing to me right now, which is leaving and not loving me anymore. What if tomorrow I want to do that? So he goes through this at the beginning. You know, you've loved me for a day, but now tomorrow you're going to leave me. And I think, uh, and, th- and then or tomorrow you might, you're going to leave me. You're going to give me all these ex- examples or reasons why. And then at the end, he says, wait a second, maybe those are good reasons. Or, or maybe I need to think for myself and, or, or I'm not ready to make these kinds of commitments myself. So I need to calm down. So woman's constancy kind of, again, takes on another meaning where it's ironic because she's not being constant in the poem. But then by the end of the poem, we realize that neither is he and he's questioning it as well. So it's, it's you know, he's worried that he's not going to be constant in his own way. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed Woman's Constancy. This is Metaphysical Mondays on the Troubadour Podcast.